So this is extra, extra free gift uh, just to celebrate the end of Chinese New Year. An extra 15 minutes. <laughs> so what are we going to start off? Because I know as soon as I finish giving talks, people come up and say, can I ask questions? So instead of leaving the questions till after the talk, now we have questions before the talk. So this is big chance to ask questions. You had a hand up? Yes, what's your question? <laughs> what's the question you most wanted to ask? It's terrible. This is the same. I just come back from KL and from Malacca and Kuching. I ask any questions and everyone is quiet. And then as soon as they go, they line up to ask questions. <laughs> ah, yes. Yes, what is your question? Morning, Ajahn. Is that your question? Yes, oh, no. That's a good question. Uh, my Next question, question. is, uh, uh, because uh, my daughter is growing up to be a teenager, probably uh, coming up to be a rebellious type. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, uh, because everything that uh, she thinks she did is correct. So, uh, how do I change uh, her mind? Uh, I mean, how do I change her perception that uh, not everything that she did is correct. I mean, she okay. has a perception that you should uh, use reverse psychology. So tell her to go out at night and stay out late. Tell her to not do any homework, <laughs> and then she will rebel. <laughs> she will stay home do all her homework. <laughs> now, one thing with teenagers. Okay, uh, I'll just. This is a very um, common technique. You should do sandwich technique whenever you tell off your teenagers. Sandwich technique is when you're talking to a teenager, they're not doing well at, at school. So you first of all, you tell them what a wonderful girl that is, what a wonderful person, you know, how you love them so much and how you, know, you admire them for coming to the BF and all the lovely things they do in their house. And oh, some, some parents have got terrible children, but you're just a lovely child. Make them feel good and then say, but. <laughs> You should do work, more work on your homework. But you know, you're still a wonderful child. And sandwich technique means whenever you're talking to someone, to make sure they listen to you, you praise them first of all to show them that you value them. And then when you show the value, value them, they're listening to the next piece of praise. So that no, no, ears are open. And when the ears are open, then you can put in the criticism. And then you sort of put some praise afterwards, you know, just to make sure that so that it doesn't leave a bitter taste in their heart. And they call that sandwich technique. It's a wonderful technique for talking to teenagers, because teenagers are so, well, too often they're being criticized. And because they're being criticized, it's not just by you, you know, at school as well. If you don't come in the top one or two percent, you know, you're not trying hard enough. So it means ninety eight percent of the children, you know, are feeling they're not really doing good enough. And it's not just that, you know, as a young teenage girl or a teenage boy, the young teenage girls, they never feel they're pretty enough. And so that they have a lot of problem with their, their self-image. And the same with the boys as well, because this is where the competition really starts. You know, not competition in academic success, but in social success. And so many teenagers go through a lot of trouble. And really, what they want from their parents is just a bit uh, to be valued. 
you'd still need to give them what we call in business performance assessment, how they're doing at home and how they're doing at school. But if you do it with a sandwich technique, then they're more liable to listen. And the other thing which I know from teenagers is they always do listen to their parents. They do. They just will, will not admit it. So you don't need to keep forcing it and say, you, know, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this. You said it and they, they've heard you. A lot of time, a little bit of encouragement and love and your, your children will do very well. Of course, they'll have a little bit of rebellious in them, rebelliousness in them. So it's best to give them some areas where they can, they can push the boundaries and actually make sure you don't keep the boundaries too close. And give them some width to explore. But you know, the really big boundaries, you know, like uh, if it's like premarital sex, you know, drugs, those are the things you put very strict boundaries in. Other things, if they want to go out with their friends or whatever, they have to, because they're young. So it gives them a lot of freedom, but you know, draw very strict lines where it's very, very dangerous. And that way your children will respect you. And they want, not, they want to do the right thing by their parents. They just need a bit of encouragement. Remember, the pressure's really on them. So that way, I think the children, they go through this. It's part of their being a hormo uh, the hormones. Now remember, they're trying to be independent. They're growing up. They're not part of mum and dad anymore. They're individual young men, young women. And they've got to feel that way too. So you give them respect, give them trust, and most young people live up to that trust. And it means mum and dad don't have to worry so much about them. Well, the children aren't that bad. You know, they're just going through there. And, and nearly all children, oh, they make it up to some mischief. You know, one of the naughtiest things I did when I was a child, actually, was when I was a pre-teenager. I had a friend who was a, uh, a chemistry expert. So he made a bomb. <laughs> the two of us. We, we, let, we let it off in the park. It worked. It went, we went bang! <laughs> and I got into big trouble. But I was just being a young boy, just experimenting with life. It, it, was really, it was really wonderful, I was really excited, until we got caught. <laughs> <laughs> so we all do naughty things sometimes, but when we do, you know, remember that your child is just you know, trying to be an adult, you made a mistake. So a lot of times, that if you're kind and caring, you know, they, they know they've made mistakes, they're trying to do the best. And so a lot of times they want support from their parents. So you've got to remember this teenage, oh, they're okay. And sometimes parents have brought their, their teenage children to me and I thought, wow, come on, they're really nice kids. Sometimes parents over-worry about their children. It's quite natural because they're your children, you want the very, 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 very best for them. And you want to protect them, but sometimes you over-protect them. And you over-care for them. Well, really, give them a little bit more freedom and they'll be fine. But you know, know where the real dangers are. And those are the ones we've got to be very strict. You know, with drugs, you know, or sex, or you know, the things which could cause them huge amounts of problems. That's easy. That's an easy question. <laughs> Living in Sydney. It's in Singapore, it's so busy. Is it possible to achieve full enlightenment? Do you really want to be enlightened? <laughs> if you're enlightened, no more sex, no more movies, no more husband. 
Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's always possible. It just depends on how much you want to let go. But it doesn't matter. Don't look for the big sort of prize. Because how many people win the big prize in the lottery? It doesn't matter if you win a middle prize. That's still a lot of money. So just go for middle prize. And maybe next time you go for higher prize. Actually, I'm not quite sure if I can fit this into my talk, but I heard this story uh, a few days ago, and uh, I told this on the car coming up, because I know that Singapore people, all Chinese people, they love ghost stories. <laughs> <coughs> I don't think I told this uh, the last time I was here. The story of the ghost from Phuket. Did I tell that story? No, but this is a very interesting story. It's a true one because we know the people who this occurred to. Two days after the tsunami hit, a Thai girl living about 100 miles away from Phuket, living in, in Grabi, she had a dream that night. She dreamt of a ghost an English girl <laughs> who came to see her. She was young, maybe in her early 20s. But her hair, her long blonde hair, was tangled and a real mess. You know, tsunami really gives you bad hair day. <laughs> so her hair was a mess. Her clothes were all ripped. Her face was bruised and gashed because she had died in the tsunami. And she came to this Thai girl in her dream and said, I was in the tsunami in Phi Island and I've been killed. At this very moment, said the girl, the Thai soldiers are lifting my body and taking it into one of the Buddhist temples on Phuket Island, which was acting as a temporary repository for the corpses. She said, my mother in London is desperately trying to call me but she can't get through because my mobile is in the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> Only a fish would answer. <laughs> and she says she does not know what has happened, but fears the worst. And what she fears the most has happened, I've died. But look, I don't want my mother to see me like this. Can you please go to Phuket? This is the name of the temple where my body is. You've seen me and you'll be able to identify me quickly. This is my name. Can you please arrange a Buddhist funeral? Even though I'm not a Buddhist, I want a Buddhist cremation. And then ring my mother and tell her what has happened. But tell her to come only when the cremation is over to collect my ashes and take them back to London. Can you please, please do that for me? But before the ghost left, the ghost gave a series of numbers. <laughs> when, when she woke up, she remembered the whole dream as if it was like in broad daylight. And she woke up her husband, who was an English man. And when he saw those numbers, that looked really like a telephone number in London. So he said, why not try it? And so she did. And a woman answered on the other end, and it was the mother of a young girl who was lost on P.P. Island. When the Thai girl described what this girl looked like, the mother burst into tears. It was her. It was her daughter. 
She was very sad that she had confirmation that her daughter had died, but at least it was what we call closure. Alas, she knew. She ex expected the worst. And when, when the Thai girl told her the instructions that she should not come until the cremation was completed, the mother agreed and started preparing to travel to Thailand to pick up her daughter's ashes. In the meantime, the Thai girl with her husband took the day off went to Phuket, found that temple, that Buddhist monastery, and found the body, just as they'd seen in the dream. It was her, and quickly arranged a very fast cremation. It was only a couple of days. And after the cremation was finished, the mother arrived from London, and the Thai girl and the English husband met her at the airport in Phuket, hugged, cried, and talked about the girl in the dream and handed the ashes to the mother who flew off to London a day or two afterwards. She'd done what the ghost had asked, but that was not the end of the story. <laughs> a couple of days later when she was back at home in Grabi, she had another dream. And this time, this time, the ghost had such beautiful hair as if it'd just been to beauty salon. Her face had no cuts, was radiant and smiling, and she was wearing white, shining clothes, typical of a heavenly being. And she came, smiling, happy, to this girl in her dream, saying, Thank you so much, thank you, thank you, thank you, for arranging everything, arranging my funeral, so I can you know, get reborn in the heavenly realm. Thank you for looking after my mother, no, telling her, look, meeting her at the airport and looking after her. You just helped me so much. Now I want to help you. So the ghost gave another series of numbers. <laughs> Not a telephone number. <laughs> I think you all know what those series of numbers were. And of course, coming from a ghost, it won. So they got a lot of money. And it was just a ghost's way of saying thank you. And that was a true story because we know that girl. Now, next time ghost comes in your dream, please help it and care for it. <laughs> you may be able to retire early. <laughs> That's a true ghost story. Because I gave a talk in KL on Friday night. Buddhist tales of the supernatural. <laughs> And the other tale, you've heard many of my ghost stories, but the other tale, which is again from Perth, which I told, which is an amazing tale, because again it uh, comes from one of my disciples there, Jim. He's a Scottish boy. And uh, he had, you know, he's got lots of friends, but these two particular friends of his, that young men, they were sharing a house in Perth. They weren't sort of gay, they were just like friends. It's cheaper actually to share a house together while they'd started work and they had their own girlfriends and whatnot. And his friend was always a practical joker, would always play jokes on um, this other man. And when this, uh, this practical joker got cancer, and it was uh, too far gone, even though he was a young man, he'd get cancer. And he told him, when I die, I'm going to come back as a ghost and play more jokes on you. <laughs> he promised that. And it was true that after he died, he came and played jokes. You know, silly jokes like you know, doors slamming, uh, the refrigerator opening, and being in the shower. And now it's hot and now it's cold. You didn't even touch anything. 
But even actually one day, and this is all confirmed, not making this up or exaggerating, one day while his, uh, his friend, because after he died, yes, his girlfriend moved into the house, one day that uh, he was out at work, both out at work, when they came home, they'd locked the house up and all the furniture from the living room was out on the garden in front, <laughs> just standing there. So the ghost was a really, really naughty ghost. And you know, we're still there, but when uh, this Buddhist man, Jim, Jim Hanna, when he went to visit his friend, his friend was telling him about this ghost, because you know you have a cup of coffee, you talk about all sorts of things. And Jim, being a Scotsman from Glasgow, said, I don't believe in ghosts. There are no such things as ghosts. And, his, and it, Jim told me what happened next. His friend said, look, the ghost is still here. So I'll ask him to prove that ghosts exist. And as he said that, they had like a, a pot plant, like flowers, but real flowers, like on roses. And a petal of a rose broke off the plant and floated horizontally and then down on the end of the coffee table. It was half on and half off the coffee table. And Jim said, coincidence. <laughs> and after he said that, another petal broke off, floated horizontally and straight down on top of the other leaf, perfectly matched. And he said, must be wind. <laughs> and a third petal <laughs> broke off floated horizontally and right on the top of the other two petals, perfectly matched. And Jim said, I've got to go. <laughs> and he got in his car and he said, it didn't matter where he was driving, he was leaving. <laughs> so there are such things as ghosts. There are such things. And the most dangerous ghosts, you've all, many of you heard this story before, but for those of you who haven't, those who have heard it, be quiet, don't laugh the most dangerous ghost in the whole world, especially here in Singapore. I've seen this ghost, I've seen this ghost possess people. Enter them and actually change the way they speak. And I've seen this personally. I've seen them speak really strangely and act completely out of character. They're not their real selves. I've seen this many times. And even... I haven't actually seen this, but I've known many cases where that ghost has killed that person, caused their death. Many people have died because of this ghost. We call it the bottle ghost. Bottle ghost. It's the most dangerous ghost in the whole world, the bottle ghost. It lives in bottles of whiskey and beer. <laughs> when, you, when you open the lid and start drinking it, it possesses you. And you start speaking in very strange ways. And you act completely out of character. And sometimes if you're driving a car under the influence of the bottle ghost, it kills you. <laughs> That's why we call whiskey spirits. <laughs> <laughs> so the most dangerous ghost in the whole world is bottle ghost. So you Singaporeans are afraid of ghosts. That's the real ghost to be afraid of. Because <laughs> that's the dangerous one. So beware, never uncork the bottle. Otherwise, the spirit ghost will come out and make you do strange and nasty things. Okay, I'm just <laughs> chatting, making fun, having fun. Okay, what should we do now? Okay, first of all, can you just move in so that uh, if there's any latecomers that want to squeeze in, you could? Especially this side here. Some more space over here, please. Yeah, come closer. 
Okay. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to the Buddhist Fellowship. I guess Adrian Brown has been entertaining you for the last 15 minutes, so uh, now we're going to get uh, cracking. <laughs> we'll start with the usual morning service chanting. I'd like to request for Adrian Brown to give us the precepts, then followed by the talk on solving problems. Thank you. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? Okay, we'll start with the Arahan. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Ah, ah come on! <laughs> 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 you got to give it some pizzazz. Here we go. Arahang sama sambodo bagawa budang bagawandang abiwa de mi bow if you can. Suakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammagnamasami Bow again. Supatipano Bhagavato Sawakasango Sankhangnamami Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato Alahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Another three refugees. Buddhang Saranang Chami. Tamang Saranang Chami. Sankang Saranang Chami. Dutiampi Buddhang Saranang Chami. Dutiampi Dhammang Saranangachami Dutiampi Sankhang Saranangachami Tatiampi Buddhang Saranangachami Tatiampi Dhammang Saranangachami Tatiampi Sankang Saranangachami. Now we're going to give you the five precepts. Panati Pata Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Adinatana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Kame sumi chachara veramani sikapadang samadhyami Musawada veramani sikapadang samadhyami 
So give a talk for about 45 minutes in Q&A and finish at what time? 12.20, okay, plenty of time. So the talk today is, what is the talk today anyway? Oh, solving problems, that's an easy talk to give, it's no problem to give a talk on solving problems. So when you are solving problems, that we have always problems in life. You have your problems, I have my monk problems and my abbot problems. Oh, my life is so full of problems. Actually, I wish it were more full of problems. If I had more to worry about, I wouldn't be so fat. <laughs> <laughs> I lost weight. Uh, I think people in the front, they must be short-sighted. I think you need to wear some more glasses. But so solving problems. First thing about solving problem, we have to know what's a problem or what is no problem. And one in this lovely book over here, one of those stories, and I think this is one of the most meaningful stories in that book, was a tale of the British Prime Minister. He was uh, resigned, or he was got out, no, diselected. What's it called? He got anyway. He lost his position. And so he retired, that uh, Prime Minister called Harold Macmillan. Anyone old enough to know that name, uh, you're old enough as me, older than me. He was a great Prime Minister, but after he uh, uh, retired or whatever, he was like an elder statesman. So people would go to him to ask for advice, and one day uh, people asked him about the problem in the Middle East. Now, because that particular time was during the Six-Day War, now between Israel and Jordan and, and who else? Palestine, uh, I think, I think it was, uh, yeah, Palestine, uh, Lebanon, Egypt, and all the countries surrounding Israel. I know that many people say it wasn't a six-day war because it's almost like a 26 or 36 or 40-year war because it hasn't really stopped yet. But anyway, it was called the Six-Day War. In the middle of that war, the newspapers came up to this ex-British PM and asked him, what do you think about the problem in the Middle East? And he replied without hesitation, there is no problem in the Middle East. And that really surprised the reporter. He said, haven't you read the newspapers, seen the TV? There's a war going on. Right as we speak, tanks are shelling each other, people are being strafed with bullets, many, many people are dying, Buildings are being blown up. This is a war. What do you mean there's no problem in the Middle East? And this ex-PM, who was hardened through many years at the helm of a great country dealing with world problems and trying to find solutions, he replied, based on years of experience, Sir, a problem is something with a solution. There is no solution in the Middle East. Therefore, it can't be a problem. Now, there was a lot of wisdom in that. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that applies to our daily life as well as international affairs. Because if you imagine a person at the helm of a country, you can't afford to waste any time in trying to find solutions when there isn't any, at least for the time being. Why waste your time on, on difficulty situations which basically don't have a solution? 
what you need to do is to wait until a solution appears, until it's something that you can actually do. In the meantime, it's much better to put all your effort and energy on other aspects of your life, times when there is a solution. And unfortunately, many, many people, they waste too much time on things which aren't really problems. In other words, which haven't got a solution. If they haven't got a solution, then stop worrying about it. And too often we waste so much time worrying about things which haven't got a solution that the places where we can be effective, we just forget about them. We don't act on them and we become a very inefficient human being. So there's many things which haven't got a solution. Uh, let's say, say some examples. You know, people dying. And of course you're going to die. Actually, just before I left Australia, that was about eight, nine days ago, people from Melbourne were calling our monastery. Three or four um, disciples who we'd known for a long time, they were calling our monastery. And they said, is it true, is it true that Ajahn Brahma's got cancer and is in hospital? <laughs> and I answered it. And I said, I haven't heard that yet. But we've heard you're dying. I said, oh yeah, I'm dying. Maybe 30 years, 40 years, but I'm dying. <laughs> so it's amazing that when people are dying, they really have got cancer, and then the last legs, it's not a problem anymore. I was doing some counseling in KO yesterday. A lady, oh no, it's, a, it's actually two people, three people had cancers. And I said, no, what have you been doing in your life? And actually they've been serving the temple over there, doing lots of generosity, lots of kindness. They're really good people. So, wow, you've got cancer and you've been such a good person, you're in a win-win situation. What do you mean a win-win situation? Well, if you get through this cancer, you know, you'd be very happy. If you die, well, you'd be very happy in heaven. What's the problem? <laughs> it's true. What is the problem anyway? It's a win-win situation. So, <laughs> if there's nothing you can do about it, and in the hospital bed you're dying, enjoy it. Imagine, imagine that your relations had clubbed together and got you a lot of money and brought you this first class trip to say to your favorite, say to, to Paris, to Paris in the springtime. First class tickets on SIA, five, no, six class, six star hotels, beautiful trip and 3,000 American dollars a day for spending money for three weeks. If that, that was your, your holiday, you would be dreaming about that. You couldn't wait. You'd be counting the hours until you get on that plane and go to Paris for this holiday of a lifetime. Wouldn't you be excited for a trip like that? Well, heaven is much better than that. When the doctor says only three months to leave, you'll be counting days. Oh, only three months, only two months, one month, three weeks, three weeks, three weeks, three weeks, three weeks, an hour, hey. You get so excited before you're going to die. <laughs> Why is it we don't think like that? Death is not a problem. Is it? We're going to do it anyway, so we might as well get it out of the way. <laughs> No, you can't get it out of the way. But this is why we have to first of all understand what is a problem and what isn't a problem. And if it's not a problem, there's nothing you can do about it, then relax. That's why I run another story in this book. It's advertised, a great book. 
I've been coming to Singapore so often, I know all about marketing. <laughs> this is a great story, because this is not in any Buddhist text, because this is actually a new story, and it was told to me by a, a school teacher. When I was working in, in school, and I was one year as a high school teacher, and often people ask me, why did you become a monk? And that was one of the reasons. Teaching kids at school was enough to make anyone think of leaving the world. Because <laughs> I know what teenagers are like. So, so anyway, I remember in the staff room one day, this old teacher, he was an English, the head of the English department, he told this story. It was a brilliant story. Because he was serving in the British Army in Burma during the Second World War. And while he was serving as a soldier. He wasn't a professional soldier. During the Second World War, everybody had to join. Even though he didn't know one end of a gun from another when he started. But there you go, you're in the army, sent off to far, far distant lands, and there firing real bullets at others, and others firing bullets at you. Really scary. And he said one day he was on a patrol, you know, in the villages, jungles of Burma, with a few other soldiers, under a captain. And they had a scout, and the scout came back and whispered something to the captain. It was a really bad situation they've got into. They have wandered into a huge number of Japanese troops. They were now completely surrounded, heavily outnumbered, with no way out. At war, Second World War. Death was staring at him in all directions. And he said he was really surprised he wasn't so scared. Even though he knew this was probably going to be the end of his life, he had some heroism. He said, let's go and fight our way through. Who knows that one, one of us might survive. But even if we don't survive, at least we can kill some of the enemy and take them into death with us. That's you know, the macho, heroic thing to do. His captain said no. No, we won't fight. We'll all sit down and have a cup of tea. It was the British Army, after all. <laughs> <laughs> and this young soldier thought his captain was crazy. Maybe the heat had got to him. How can you think of having a cup of tea in the jungle, in the Second World War, surrounded by Japanese troops, heavily outnumbered and about to die? Who would think of having a cup of tea in such a situation? The captain did, and that was an order. And at war, you have to follow those orders. So this young soldier told me he thought this is the craziest thing he's ever done in his whole life, making a cup of tea in the jungle about to die. Whew. But in the time it took them to make the tea, before he finished drinking it, the scout whispered something in the captain's ear. The captain got all the soldiers together and said, put your stuff away quickly. The enemy has moved. There's a way through. Let's move silently and quickly, which they did, and they all escaped. Which is why he could tell the story many years later. And he said, the wisdom of that captain not only saved his life during the war, but also saved his life many, many times afterwards. There were times when he was facing financial ruin, when the auditors were circling around him, heavily outnumbered, there were times when he had cancer. At this time, the doctors was, were circling around him and his relations waiting for the inheritance. <laughs> and there seemed to be no way out. 
when death, destruction, financial ruin was surrounding him heavily outnumbered and there was nothing he could do. He learned in such dire situations he would sit down, do nothing and have a cup of tea. Because he realized at that time there was not a problem because there was no solution. Fighting your way out wasn't a solution, that was suicide. So sit down, enjoy yourself, rest and wait for things to change. Because life is always changing. One truth with all religions or those with no religions will all agree upon is that this life is always in flux, situations are always changing. If there's nothing to do, not now but later on there will be something you can do. And so when you realize at the moment there's not a problem, sit down, have a cup of coffee if you don't like tea, or a herbal peppermint if that's what you like. Now have some nice bowl of noodles, I don't know what you like in Singapore, some quay or whatever. <laughs> but when, when, when you eat that, you're resting, you're relaxing, conserving your energies, waiting for the moment you can be effective. And when you can do something, then it's a problem. Because you have to do something. So a lot of times when people have got cancer and the doctor says, inoperable, you can't do anything about it. Wonderful, it's not a problem, is it? <laughs> you can rest and be still, enjoy yourself and see what happens. Sometimes things do change when you're still. And so actually stillness and rest is not doing nothing, it's actually doing something very, very powerful. It's called waiting. And a lot of times that people, either in business or in life, create more problems than they're trying to solve because at times you don't know how to sit still and wait and wait. So, this is Singapore. This is built on a city of the lion. I went to Kuching. That's the city of the cat. <laughs> so you have a connection there. Small cat and big cat. Have you ever noticed cats going for their prey? They just sit absolutely still and they wait. They don't do anything until mouse comes out. When mouse comes out, it still doesn't do anything until mouse is closed. Nothing catches it. <laughs> <laughs> that's how the cat catches a mouse. Cats know how to solve problems. Now that's not a best Buddhist simile, so I do apologize <laughs> to all your vegetarians. But I think you understand the meaning of the simile. So as human beings, sometimes we need to wait and wait for the right time and then we know how to solve the problems. So the first part of this talk, identifying what's a problem and what's not a problem. What you can solve and what you can't solve. And if you can't solve it, leave it for a while and wait. Have a cup of tea. In, uh, regenerate your energies. Wait. And then when there's something to do, you can be very effective. Whether that's in business or in life. Too many people, when the business times are difficult, they overreact because they don't know how to wait for the situation to change. They overreact, they sell these shares, they buy these shares and you end up like that guy in Society General or Nick Leeson, taking the whole bank down with you because you don't know how to just to wait and allow things to change instead of overreacting all the time. But there's also when you do have the problem then what do you do? How do you solve problems in life, real ones, where you can be effective? 
again, waiting is a wonderful way to actually to solve problems. Because the problems you have to make some sort of choice, some decision, which way forward in life should you marry that guy? Should you divorce that girl? Should you change your job? Should you actually go for the biopsy? Should you take the chemotherapy or take Chinese medicine? Should you invest in this or invest in that? Life is full of problems to be solved. But the first thing to know with problems, there is no such thing in life as a wrong decision. There's only different options open up after you've made a decision. That's why I see these things in life. You make a decision, you decide to marry that guy or marry that guy. One thing to always know about guys, they're all the same. <laughs> they may have different chassis, but the motor is the same. <laughs> Girls are the same. I mean, their chassis are very different. But understand that women's motor, exactly the same. The way that woman works. doesn't matter, a beautiful supermodel, an ugly old granny, underneath, they're the same, same woman. <laughs> so really, it doesn't matter which one you marry. You think it does, so cut your losses and go for that one. <laughs> because whatever decision you make, if you're really very wise, you can make it work. It's interesting. So whenever I make decisions, it doesn't matter what decision I make. Whatever happens, there's an always an outcome which I can work to my advantage, which you can do something about. And that's why understanding there's no such thing about a wrong decision. If you make the wrong decision, make the wrong investment, and you lose all of your money and all your property, that's not a bad outcome. It means you can become monk. <laughs> you don't need any money to be a monk. And sometimes you think, wow, that's the best thing which ever happened to me. If I had not lost all my money, I would still be in the office working hard, getting cancers, getting stressed. And now, because I lost my money, I became a monk, the best thing which ever happened to me. It's like when my girlfriend dumped me. Oh, it's the best thing which ever happened to me. Because now I can become a monk instead of having babies and grandchildren and worrying about all this and all that. Oh, it's much better than my girlfriend dumped me. Actually, she didn't really dump me. But actually, nice story because people are romantic in Singapore and they want to know, why did you become a monk, Ajahn Brahm? Was it because of a broken heart? Wouldn't that be romantic if I said, yes, my heart was broken and I couldn't face the world anymore. And I decided to go to a monastery to forget my pain. <laughs> Maybe I did forget, because I can't remember now. <laughs> but, but no. But no, seriously though, whatever decisions you make in life, you'll find that both ways you can always make it work. And the reason, if you understand that, there's no such thing as a wrong decision, they're just different pathways in life. You understand that you don't need to be afraid when you make decisions. Because sometimes people, they have a decision to make and they worry about it, they think about it, they lose their sleep over it, rather than knowing how to make decisions. Knowing there's no such thing about as a wrong decision, you can always you know, have options afterwards, after the decision is made. It's never the end of the world. Understanding that lessens your fear of making decisions. So you're not paralyzed. I know too many people, they're trying to make a decision in life. 
and they just can't because they're afraid of one being wrong and the other one being right. There's no such thing as a right decision or a wrong decision. They're always somewhere in between. Because they're not perfectly right, they're not perfectly wrong, I just make the decision, see what happens, and go with it. Now that takes away a lot of the pressure and suffering from decisions in life. But in order to increase your chances that your decision is going to be on the good side of the line rather than on the, the unfortunate side of the line, we make sure we don't act out of what we call in Buddhism stupidity or delusion. We want to gather as much information as we possibly can before we make that decision. So if you're thinking about marrying this guy, get a PI first of all and check him out. <laughs> you don't actually need a PI, just get a few friends. You can soon find out what this guy's up to. How about that girl? You don't marry the pretty face, because the pretty face doesn't last very long. And it's only just makeup, you know, what's underneath, you know, who knows. <laughs> That's why I always tell the case about romance. Where do you go to fall in love in Singapore? You go to candlelit restaurant. You go to the dark nightclub. You go to a walk at night under the moonlight or the stars. Anywhere, anywhere where it's dark so you can't see what you're falling in love with. Because <laughs> no one ever falls in love in the middle of the day in the bright sunshine. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? That's where you romance. <laughs> but we want to really find out the truth of things. And so if you are making a choice, no delusion, find out the truth. Even in business, do as much research as you possibly can. And then when you've got all the decisions, all the, all the information there, then just, it's like programming it into your brain. And then leave it. Don't go thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking about it. Because when we think and worry about it, we just cannot see the answer. I remember just one of the senior workers in the social uh, work uh, in Perth, a very senior manager. Remember her coming to one of my retreats once, and she arrived late because she had so many problems at work which she had to try and sign off on before she could actually go to the meditation retreat. So she arrived really late, stressed out, really tired. I said, "Just don't worry about the chanting. Go to bed. Get up. Get up just before breakfast and go to bed after breakfast. Get, catch up on your sleep." But she was a very wise girl because she understood about meditation. She had those problems and I told her, don't worry about them. She said, no, I don't need to. But about three or four days into the retreat, she came to me in the interview. She said, I was just meditating quietly and all these solutions to those problems came up. Ma amazing solutions. She said, I'm really amazed myself that th I thought of those solutions. I said, where did they come from? She said, look, you programmed all the information in. And subconsciously, your mind actually works through that data and it actually prints out a solution. And she told me, and I've known this many times for myself and other people, if you follow that process of just programming the information and forgetting about it, the solutions which come up from a quiet, still mind, which is not worrying and not thinking, they are amazing solutions and highly effective. 
So she put those solutions into practice when she went to work after the retreat and of course they were very, very effective solutions to the problems she faced. You can't think those solutions through. You have to intuit the solutions. And the only way you can intuit it is through a silent mind. Which is why when a person comes to the Buddhist fellowship and learns a bit of meditation, you actually learn how to problem solve in a very, very effective way. Too many people, when they have these problems, they go thinking, 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 worry, worry, worry. And of course, you know, you can't do anything. You know, when you're worrying so much, you can't see any truth or any wisdom at all. You know, which is why you know, we should just forget all this worry business. If there's really something you can do, then think about it, put those uh, uh, data in, and then leave it alone. But worrying about it never solves a problem at all. It just creates anxiety for you and actually ruins your health and stops you being happy. So, when we do this, it's so easy. I call this in my book, when you have a problem, when you have to make a decision, I call it getting to a crossroads in your life and instead of worrying, should I go left, right, straight ahead, or reverse, you sit down and wait for the bus. <laughs> because at every crossroads, there'll be a bus coming sooner or later, and every bus has got its destination written on the front. And so you can see where that bus is going, and if that's where you want to go, you can jump on. If that's not where you want to go, you can wait because there's always another bus coming behind. So when you get to a decision you have to make, put all the, all the information in, let it sort of ferment in your brain, wait. And then a solution comes up, if that's where you want to go, go for it. If you want to wait for another solution, just wait for a while and that solution will come. So really, the problems are actually quite easy to solve in life. As far as Buddha was concerned, he said, look, when you are making a decision like that, there's always remember four things you should never do when you're making decisions. He said, never act out of selfish desire, what's in it for you. Never act out of ill will, now, trying to sort of harm another person or yourself. Never act out of delusion, and I've dealt with that. Make sure you've got as much information as you possibly can. And last, never act out of fear. Now, even in business, pe people make decisions out of fear. In life, we make decisions out of fear, afraid what other people will say or think about us. Look at me. I'm not afraid what other people think of me, dressed like this in our modern world. It may be okay in Singapore, but you go to New York and you get some really strange looks. Just, just last night, people actually somebody asked me, sort of, you know, in a question time last night. It said, "Ajahn Brahm, would you be willing to solemnize the gay marriage?" They said, "I put me on the spot," and so I started talking about my experiences with gays in Australia. And uh, this story, if you remember this, Angie, I said at the first global conference in uh, here in Singapore in 2000, one day. One day I was uh, going into Perth City for doing some business and my driver parked in one of these uh, multi-story car parks and then he had to go toilet. And there was a toilet in the car park but he refused to go in that one. He said it was dirty. And he said just on the other side of the street in the foyer of a cinema, he said there was clean toilets there and it was open to the public 
you know, you could just walk in there and go to a nice toilet in the foyer, the entrance of a cinema. So off he went into his toilet, and I stood outside waiting for him. As I was waiting outside this, um, this cinema, just standing out there, just looking at this, looking at that, just minding my own business, this young man came up to me. And he said, Ooh, have you got the time? <laughs> now, I don't wear watches, and I'm a very naive, simple-living monk. <laughs> so I said, actually, no, I don't have a watch. I don't have the time. And he scowled at me. And I think, it's only the time. Why get angry at me for that? And he started walking off. And then I suddenly remembered. Now, have you got the time is the oldest pickup line in the book. <laughs> I found out later that my driver had left me standing in one of the most famous and favorite pickup points for gays. <laughs> so there I was standing in my monk's robe as if I was asking to be picked up by a homosexual. And the man confirmed it because he went a little bit further and he turned around and he smiled at me and he said to me, Oh, but you do look beautiful in that robe. <laughs> and I was so afraid and embarrassed. And I really scolded that driver. Never leave me there again. <laughs> How did I get into that story anyway? I forget. <laughs> Solomites gay marriage, yeah, but, but why did I say that? I don't know, anyway. <laughs> but it's all about decisions, not having any fear and being open and getting all the decisions out there so it's not any problem anymore. So oh, that's right, but not being afraid what other people think of you, that was the point. Because a lot of time in fear, we're so afraid what other people think of us, we just paralyze, we can't make those decisions. So please don't worry, worry what other people think of you at all. If you are just living your life trying to please somebody else or please other people, you have a terrible life. Okay, be concerned about other people, but remember about yourself as well, you count. So also spend some time pleasing yourself, sometimes pleasing others. And if you have a decision to make, you have to go for it. You may upset other people in the short term, but in the long term you realize it's probably the best decision. Which is the other thing, when you are, have uh, some wisdom there, you've got to look at the long term solution even though it might be a little bit painful for you at the beginning, in the long term it's going to be the very best for you and for other people as well. So sometimes we look at the long-term solution, short-term pain, long-term happiness and comfort. So we don't act out of fear, we're acting out of wisdom, not selfish desire, not ill will, we're acting sensibly. And if you make decisions like this, you probably know that these are going to be the best decisions. Because when you make a decision, you're solving a problem, and it's obviously the Buddhist law of karma. You're doing it with good karma. No ill will, no selfish desire, no stupidity, no fear. If you act out of fear or selfishness or ill will, you're making bad karma. And bad karma always comes back to you. You can't escape it. And so there's lots and lots of stories about people who do make stupid decisions, selfish decisions, and it always comes back to hurt them. Now, I read this story because I always, always collect some of these weird stories. You know, in the newspapers, every now and again, they, you know, they have this odd story file. And those, I always like to read those ones. Do they have them in the Straits Times, odd stories? Because there's this guy in, in Spain. He had bad karma. He was fed up with his wife. 
so he looked in the classified columns he wanted to go out with one of these loose women so he made an appointment with her called her up on the phone and made an appointment for an extramarital liaison that's very very bad karma you know what happened to him he went to this hotel room knocked on the door and when he opened the door there the woman who answered it was his wife <laughs> she was acting as a prostitute on the side <laughs> so they both got caught so remember when you try and do these things you'll always come to a sticky end someone will find out eventually so remember be wise and don't make stupid decisions out of selfishness or what's in it for you I read on the aircraft coming over here that a long time we always thought it was the men who had extramarital affairs but there's an article in Sunday Straits Times it's the women who have extramarital affairs these days so don't think you're getting your own back <laughs> this is also going to cause you a lot of strife and a lot of trouble because even the men they can see what's going on <laughs> they are smart don't think your husband is gundu He knows what's going on. <laughs> so, but it, you know, if there is those sorts of problems, you can actually solve them. I remember, I, remember, I think it was uh, ABC told his story. It's one of her stories, but I thought it was a wonderful story about one because she, she was doing some marriage counselling. Uh, one of her clients went up to her once. That's long been true. He's one of the patrons of this, and it's a funny story, so I don't mind telling it. She, one of her patrons, uh, not patrons, one of her clients, uh, came to her because you know, she really believed her husband was having an extramarital affair. You know, she was convinced of it. He was coming home late, he wasn't being warm to her, he was really being um, very cold, and she, she wanted a divorce. So she went to uh, ABC and said, I think we should have a divorce. And I think the counsellor said, does he love you? Of course not. So, well, look, if you have a divorce now, it will make him happy. Do you want to make him happy? No, 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 no. <laughs> and so the counselor said, I have the plan. This is the plan. Now, listen to this before you make a decision. Start now getting your hair done a bit more modern and more pretty. Start wearing makeup and nice clothes and perfume. And be really gentle and kind to him when he comes home. Because he fell in love with you once. See if you can actually make him fall in love with you again. You now, by really being nice and gentle. The plan is, once he's fallen in love with you, then divorce him. She said, yeah. <laughs> I really want to hurt him. So that was the big plan. So she started dressing up, being really kind and gentle. And every week or two, you know, they would have a meeting. How's it going? So actually, it's working. He's starting to come home earlier. And he actually hugged and kissed me today. And actually, you know, he's really being gentle and nice to me. And this was going on many, many weeks. He was coming home earlier and being more loving to her. And then she never went back to the counsellor for a month. And so the counsellor called her up. You haven't seen me. You haven't called me. What's happening? Oh, he said, he's back now. And we're, he's, we're in love again. And the counsellor said, great, we've made the plan, now divorce him. Oh no, he's so nice and loving and wonderful. <laughs> and that was the counsellor's plan from the very beginning. So there's a, a wonderful little story there, you know, that how actually you can actually solve those little problems. 
sometimes we think the problem has you know, a difficult solution, but when you're very wise and you actually go to wise people, it's amazing that some of the problems we face, if we have some innovative solutions, it's wonderful how we can actually solve some of the big problems, even in the world. But sometimes, you know, you look for big problems in the world, whether it's global warming, whether it's, um, uh, again, Palestine and Israel, you know, whether it's uh, Islamic fundamentalism or terrorism, how, or fund any fundamentalism. How can we actually solve those problems? Well, take like the evangelicals, you know, who are very active here in, in Singapore. I know somebody asked me that question. He said, what should you do you know, when you're on your deathbed and maybe your son or your nephew, because they got involved in these groups, they bring all their friends and their pastor along. They want to convert you to being a Christian when you're a Buddhist. He said, what should you do? And I remember when someone first asked me that, look, if that was me on my deathbed and my son, my daughter, whatever, brought these crazy people along, said, no, oh, you've got to convert, you've got to convert. I said, I advise them, convert, become a Christian. And then they'll leave you alone. As soon as they got out of the room, convert back again. <laughs> That's common sense. You can convert one way, you can convert the other way. <laughs> At least that gets rid of them. They get rid of them. Go on. Thank you. Out the door. You're gone now? Okay. Now that's like an innovative solution to a problem. So when you really think deeply and you've got sort of a wise mind rather than thinking a narrow way, it's amazing just how many solutions you can find to some of the problems which affect our, our, our modern society. So some of the big problems, I don't know, like problem in the Middle East, you know, about Palestine and, and Israel, you know, how can you solve those sorts of problems? And well, I don't know, one of the ways which I think that we can solve these problems in our world, it's a controversial uh, solution, but I thought that maybe our modern society should start banning religious schools, all religious schools, even Buddhist schools. But we all have to do this at the moment because there are Christian schools, Muslim schools, Hindu schools, Jewish schools, and we have to have a Buddhist school in Singapore. But eventually, wouldn't it be wonderful we have no religious schools? So your children would actually play soccer, you know, with Muslims, with Hindus, with whoever, who cares? And the reason I say that is because I came from a poor home, the school which I went to as a young man, where I grew up, was a multi-faith, multi-racial school. Now, there were Muslims in the school. There were Hindus. There were people from Africa. There were people from uh, Central America. All sorts of people, because these were migrants came into this area, because it was a poor area. And that's where I, I say I learned how to be colorblind. In other words, I, I didn't worry about the color of a person's skin or their religion or their culture. If they were good at soccer, I wanted them on my team. That's all. I, that's what I cared about. In which means I had friends, friends from different cultures and different religions, which meant when I befriended them, I couldn't think what all these adults were doing was saying that these people are different, or my religion is better than your religion, or my God is better than your God up in heaven. I imagine all these gods fighting for supremacy <laughs> up in heaven. Didn't make any sense to me. But if we had like schools where everybody met together and they played together and got to know each other and became friends together, that would go a long way to stopping some of the divisions in our society.
Of course, it would take a long time to actually to do that, but one or two generations, I think that those parts of the human condition which separate us and say that you know, we're one religion, that's another religion, we're putting these walls between us, I think that that will be taken away. When we work together, when we meet together, we soon become friends together. When we become friends together, why do we need big walls between one country and another country? I know that over in Malacca, an old man came up and told me, he said, oh, when I was young living in Malacca, the streets were so safe. You know, we could walk down the streets very happily without, but now he said, you know, the other day I left my car and it got scratched by some hoodlums. He said, life is getting really bad these days. It's not like it was in the good old days. I said, yeah, it's not like it was in the good old days. In the good old days in Malacca, you'd have to walk to the temple. Now you can drive. <laughs> At least you've got a car to be scratched. <laughs> but, you know, there are problems in this world. And, but sometimes that we should look at the good things in life as well, as well as the problems in life. If we are going to solve some of those problems, there's some problems of like wayward youth, or the problems, you know what I think one of the reasons is for wayward youth? Because we don't look after our elderly people. When we don't look after our elderly people, when they get reborn again as children, they get their own back on us. <laughs> <laughs> but if we... <laughs> but if we had... Uh, tighter families, more time for our kids. We had schools where everybody met together so we befriended, so we take down the barriers in our societies. Who knows, maybe that might live a lead to a more harmonious society. And anyway, when people like that fellow in Malacca said things are getting worse, 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 I like to say that no, it's not always the case that things go worse. Because I remember I was born in England and I used to do English history. And English history was just a whole series of war after war after war. You used to have the Hundred Years' War between England, a war which lasts a hundred years between England and Spain. My favorite war in history books was the War of Jenkins' Ear. I always remember that in history because the British sent an ambassador to Spain to talk to the King of Spain. And the King of Spain imprisoned the ambassador, lopped off his ear, and sent the ear back, I think, to Queen Elizabeth I. And so she declared war, and the war became known as the War of Jenkins, who was the ambassador's ear. <laughs> it's crazy what people used to do in Europe. They were always at war with each other, and culminating in the First and Second World Wars. But now you just cannot imagine a war in Europe. Certainly not in Western Europe, not between sort of, you know, England, France, Scotland, uh, France. It's wonderful actually to know that there has been this amazing progress and what has caused that progress is that people have moved from place to place, intermarried, got to know each other and the only fighting now is on the soccer pitch, <laughs> not sort of on the streets. And it's just inconceivable that countries there can go to war again. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that sort of idea was extended you know, beyond sort of the European Union? where countries can move freely, people can move freely, we can intermarry, we can enjoy each other's company, each other's food, each other's cultures, taking the best from each. And then when there's a mixing up of people, so the divisions of people, which is the cause of wars, the divisions of religions, which is the cause of suspicion and fear, they can all be removed, and we can solve the problem 
of mistrust between communities and religions which is one of the great causes of anger, vengeance and eventually war. Maybe that can happen. So there are ways of solving problems and that's why that somebody was asking me about the problems about Buddhism and politics. Should Buddhism get involved in politics? And usually we try and be apolitical but then again I reckon the Buddhism, the Dharma has a lot to offer sort of politicians and the ways of reaching some sort of consensus and agreement. I mean you all know that that retreat center which I'm building over in Serpentine in Australia the patron is a Dr. Gallup who was the head politician in Western Australia and he was actually the politician who told me actually not him sorry, his minister of planning and he was saying you know, Jeff is a Buddhist because what happens in the cabinet meetings like committee meetings but big time when they're spending not you know, hundred dollars, billions of dollars on infrastructure, on hospitals and stuff. In their cabinet meetings when the ministers started arguing it'd be Dr. Gallup who would thump the table and said we should be more Buddhist about this. <laughs> it's amazing that he hadn't understood that the idea in Buddhism would be more to listen to each other, to understand each other and have compassion towards one another so we can come to a consensus without raising our voices. And that's like an Australian Buddhist understood enough about the Dhamma to know that's the Buddhist way of dealing with solutions. Because one of the biggest problems or the biggest obstacles to solving problems is we just do not listen to each other. One person is speaking and the other person is thinking. That's why my monastery in Serpentine some years ago I was passing by our kitchen and when I looked through the window I saw six women, all Thai women, they were making a, a meal for the day. They were all talking. Every one of them had their mouth open saying something. And being a mathematician before I thought if there's six women in the kitchen, only six women and all six are talking, who can be doing the listening? No one was doing the listening, everyone was doing the talking. And that's actually often what happens in life. Everyone is doing the talking and hardly anyone is doing the listening. What we mean, <laughs> what we just pointed to people. <laughs> what we mean there is that you might be talking and the other person is talking inside. You know what it's like in a marriage. Here they go again, why don't they shut up? I don't know how many times I've heard this. Don't they know I'm tired? You're not listening you're talking inside your head. And that's one of the reasons why problems never get solved. Because too many people are talking and no one is listening. So it's wonderful to be able to teach people Buddhist techniques of what I call total listening. Total listening means when some person is speaking, you're absolutely quiet. Not just in your mouth, but also in your head. So you're patiently empty, silent, quiet. To I'll explain to you now what I mean by total listening. I do this exercise when I teach meditation but I'm going to do it now for you. When I'm speaking I also want you to listen to what's going on inside your mind. Because as I'm speaking you will notice there are several pauses 
between my words in those spaces bit between my words you were silent and listening totally aware because you never knew when I was going to start speaking again you were totally listening totally there now if you could do that and have that same state of mind when someone was talking with you whether that was your partner in life or your teenage daughter or your parent or your supplier or your client in business it's amazing what you can pick up from them when you're fully alert aware and receptive what I call total listening it's amazing how much information you can gather so actually that you know exactly what's going on and you can have innovative solutions to what's being said I have to practice that a lot because sometimes people ask me all sorts of questions and when they ask me all sorts of questions even though the things which I have no, no idea about you know that some of those stories and some of the situations I've got into as a monk life is really fascinating as a monk I go and do all sorts of weird and strange things one of the weirdest and strangest things I did was go to a a radio show late at night because I couldn't go during the daytime I was so busy but this radio producer which I knew who came to my talk said no you can talk very well why didn't you come on one of these talkback shows at our radio station one evening so I said yeah I'm up to that I'm up to anything now I live a very interesting life as a monk so I went to the radio show and I was a bit late so I had to be ushered straight into the into the uh, the studio and uh, the earphones were put on top of me my face was in mouth was in front of the the microphone had we had a time one or two minutes for introductions and so the uh, person introduced me to the one who was sharing the talkback show with me and said this is Dr. Gabriel Morrissey so who's she oh she's a head sexologist she's very famous she writes books on people's intimate problems I said what show am I on <laughs> and this is a show on adult themes where we take calls from the general public about their sexual performance and other stuff. <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> I've been a celibate monk for over 30 years. <laughs> so there I was in the situation of having to take talk back from the general public upon intimate matters. And I was a Buddhist monk. <laughs> but never mind. When you keep total listening, it's amazing just know what you can answer and how you can actually see what a person's asking and give a, a really good answer that was actually when this taxi driver called because taxi drivers are the ones who actually call back these late night talkback shows and it wasn't about his, his uh, sexual performance it was about his romantic life because he asked me straight away he said I'm a taxi driver I'm having an affair my wife doesn't know about it is, is that wrong that's what he asked me, just about that. Having an affair, my wife doesn't know, is that wrong? And of course, when you total listen to somebody, you don't expect you know, to say this or say that. You actually see much deeper into the problem. And that time I really nailed him, because I said, Sir, if it wasn't wrong, if it was right, you would not be ringing me up to ask. <laughs> and he hung up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I got him. 
I knew enough about psychology because I was totally listening to where he was coming from and what he was actually saying was, look, I'm having an affair, I know it's wrong, but I want some expert to say it's right. Please, please, please say it's right so I won't feel so guilty. And I refused to do that. That's why he hung up the phone. But in a situation like that, there I had a problem. There I was in an interview for two hours you know, talking about something I had very little experience about. But I do that all the time. One of the times I was being interviewed after a, a conference, and it was actually a conference on tracking, on transport issues. And I thought, I've never been to a transport issue conference before. I'll, I'll have a go at that as well. And afterwards, I was in, uh, you should know this in Singapore, actually, you may be able to find out the article, because there was somebody from uh, a shipping reporter who wanted my views as a Buddhist monk about shipping transport. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't got a clue about shipping transport, but nevertheless, I answer the questions. And the, f the, the reporter was actually very fascinated by my answers. And then he went away. I never saw him again for six months, but I saw him afterwards, and he said, Ajahn Brahm, you would not believe the success of that article. And he said, I called it Zen and the Art of Shipping by Ajahn Brahm. And it was actually syndicated throughout the world in the shipping newspapers of many, many countries, and he said he got so many emails back from people who said, we don't know who that Ajahn Brahm is, but he certainly knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I've got a clue what I was talking about, making up as I went along, but it certainly solved the problem. <laughs> now, <laughs> a lot of time in life, why are you all so afraid? You know, problems, you don't have to make problems out of things. For me, the, you know, those opportunities of like, being in the studio and actually being asked questions which I know very little about because I've been a monk for too long, at least is a way you can understand where people are coming from, you know, why they have those you know, like sexual malfunctions. Cause I know it's just fear and control, wondering what other people are thinking about you. That's the problem. So I actually go on a deeper level, which actually was the same with shipping. Go on a deeper level where actually all the problems originate from and then it's amazing what you can actually say which really helps people in their lives and solves their problems. Because a lot of times when you overcome fear, when you overcome anger, when you become, have a bit more fun with your life, with yourself, with your children, with whatever, it's amazing just how many problems are actually solved. These days, we call it in psychology, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Mindfulness-based means meditation. Cognitive therapy means Dharma. You put those two together, meditation and the right way of seeing, and the stillness and good attitudes towards life. And it's amazing how many problems that solves. Whether it's problems like sleep disorder. One of my friends who um, uh, was at a conference when we discussed mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, she started a company called sleeplikeababy.com which is using Buddhism for people throughout the world who just cannot get a good night's sleep. She solves that problem just by teaching people how to relax. You know, through mindfulness and through seeing things in a different way, through not holding on to the past, through forgiveness, letting go. As I said the last time I was here, why do you allow the past to hurt you in the present? Whoever that person was who really gave you a hard time, who cheated you, who hurt you, who abused you, 
why, why, why do you allow them to keep hurting you now? Every time you get angry at them, you think, what did they do that for? You are allowing them to hurt you one more time. Every time you let it go and just move on, then they can't hurt you anymore. When you remember it, you're allowing them, permitting them to cause you pain again. So, simple. The cognitive therapy makes you see things in a different way, so the problems of the past are solved. You don't have to carry it. It's better for you if you don't carry it. It's better for them if you don't carry it. Sometimes it's just a bad mental habit which we make for ourselves. And so we can solve that problem. Worrying about the future. Why do you worry about the future? The future's no problem. What are you worried about the future? There's always something you can do and it's always the unexpected happens. That's why one of the things the Buddha said, whatever you expect it to be, it will always be something different. That's what my life has been. I never, I never thought I was going to become a monk when I was a student. I often say, if only I had known when I was working so hard at my theoretical physics, if only I had known I was going to become a monk, I wouldn't need to work so hard. <laughs> and even as a monk, I never knew how long I was going to stay as a monk. Now, when I, I was a monk, I thought I was going to just live in a cave and live a nice, simple life. Now look at me. <laughs> Where's my simple life gone? I remember even as... I've done one more story. Remember this... I was in this monastery as five or six years as a monk. And it was a big ceremony. It was actually just the full moon of February. That's a big ceremony in Thailand as well. It's called Maga Puja. And I was in this very nice monastery in the north of Thailand. And all these people started coming. All these Thais. And I think they'd never had a Western monk there before. So all these people would come up and in front of me. And actually they would, no, at least with uh, Singaporeans, when you ask a question, it's actually asking an interesting and important question. But these Thai people would come up and say, oh, where are you from? <laughs> and how many brothers and children have you got? <laughs> and sort of, what does your mother do? And your father do? And uh, how many sisters? How many brothers? And that's all they would ever ask. And so they come up, you know, come up to me and say, oh, where are you from? I'm from England. How many brothers? Only one brother. What does your father do? What does your sisters do? And I answered that. And then the next person would come up. Well, where are you from? How many brothers? How many <laughs> sisters? <laughs> and I was getting so bored with it being asked the same question that very quickly, when there was a pause, I ran to the toilet. And from the toilet, I sneaked back to my hut. From my hut, there were caves in this monastery, and there were some really deep caves, maybe a hundred meters deep. So I went down one of these very deep caves, while no one was looking, to hide. To hide so I can sit down there and meditate and have some peace and quiet from these stupid questions. And I was only meditating for about ten minutes, and I started hearing a sound. As I heard the sound, I opened my eyes and I saw it like a light at the end of the cave, because it was a windy cave. And the light got brighter and brighter and brighter. And some of these Thai people were, were bored with all this chanting and the Dharma talks, so they decided to go and explore the caves. <laughs> my cave! <laughs> but, I, but I always remember, I, had almost, I almost got away with it, I almost had a chance. Because as I was, my eyes opened about 20 meters you know, down the bottom of the cave, 
I saw one of the Thai men come around the corner, stop and go back again. And I heard him, I understood Thai, because the conversation was, the one who actually put his head around the corner and saw me said, there's a ghost at the end of the, of the cave. There's a ghost, I saw it. And the other said, it can't be a ghost. Yes, it was a ghost. No, it wasn't a ghost. And then both heads came around very quickly, had a look back. No, it's not a ghost, it's a Western monk. <laughs> and then it all came down to see me. All of them came to the end of the cave and asked me where I came from, how many sisters? <laughs> I realize you just cannot run away. <laughs> so that's what I mean, the future is completely uncertain. I don't know what I'm going to do next or where it's going to all end up. But I have good fun. One of the best ways of solving problems in life is actually not controlling life and learning how just to adapt to every changing situation you have. So as a monk, I'm just completely out of control. And I know that. As I came here, I don't know what I'm doing today. I'm asking Angie what I'm doing today. She tells me when to speak. She tells me when to shut up. <laughs> I think this afternoon I'm going to the prison, am I? How long for? How many years? <laughs> I know, just the afternoon. But actually, I like it that way because I've got no worries. I just do what I'm told. That's the best thing. If you're a husband and got a wife, just do what you're told. It's much less, <laughs> much less pain. Then you solve all the problems then. <laughs> so that's my, my, my way of solving the problems. So as Alton Nash says, when you're married, if you are wrong, admit it. That goes for the wives as well. If you're wrong, admit it. If you are right, shut up. So, so that's a talk this today because I've gone on for a long time, an hour, and there's a possibility of asking some questions now. But that's a talk about all sorts of things and especially about how to solve problems, isn't it? Solving problems in life. The main point, sir, is know what a problem is. Sometimes the best thing is to sit down and do nothing. Never act out of fear, uh, ill will, uh, desire, or especially delusion. Great way of solving problems. Put all the information in. Wait be silent, do something else, and the solution comes out. It's a good solution. No such thing as a, as a right solution or a wrong solution. It's just a solution, that's all. And you live with it, work with it, so you're never afraid. There's no such thing as a good or a bad choice. It's just a choice, that's all. And you make deal, do with it. And that takes a lot of pressure of you, off you from making decisions in life. And a lot of life is not a problem. We're all going to end up in the coffin anyway. <laughs> just how we get there, that's all. But you know, the, the end is the same. So that way, what's the problem? <laughs> sadhu. 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 Okay, any questions about anything I said or what I didn't say or how I said it or whatever? Yes, it's a question yeah. there. Actually, when the Bodhisattva looks at the worldly people, he's what's... Mad. Mad. Mad? Well, the Bodhisattva's mad, or worldly people are mad. <laughs> <laughs> no. Now, when a, anyone looks at someone else, they're not mad, they just have compassion. It's like, you know, kids sometimes. You know, I see this, you get right, marriage counseling. Husband and wife come in, and they say, oh, she does it, does this, does this, does this, and he, he does, says that and says that. I just like a couple of kids quarreling in the sandpit. It's just like kids being kids. You know, kids have to have fights when they're growing up. That's what kids do. In my monastery, you see the young kangaroos have to fight. That's just what they have to do. You know, just so the, the female kangaroos. 
You know, I remember once the female was being chased by the male kangaroo. Even though for years I've been trying to give these kangaroos eight precepts, they still mate <laughs> <laughs> in, in our monastery. But I remember, <laughs> there was another monk who told me this story. The, the male kangaroo was chasing the girl all around, and the poor female kangaroo was panting, and she was so tired. So she actually, the monk was actually sitting just outside his hut. So the kangaroo came and sat next to him, a sanctuary. And so the, ca the female was there, panting and, and getting a rest, and the male kangaroo was about five or ten meters away, just watching, not knowing what to do next. <laughs> and the female kangaroo, once it rested, it started running away, allowing the male to, to chase it again. So that's what the female has to do. She wanted to be chased, but she was a bit tired, she wouldn't have breathed her. <laughs> now you can chase me again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I'd say. So I just see that these are just kangaroos being kangaroos. Just, you know, women being women, men being men. So Bodhisattva looks a lot, no, uh, people, they're not mad or crazy, they're just people, human beings being human beings. And sometimes you just smile as if you smile at your children when they're playing. And children look at Bodhisattva and think, oh, this is amazing, wonderful people, but they're just the same as you. Just a tiny bit kinder and wiser, that's all. For no difference. If Bodhisattvas were so different than you, they would never be able to understand you. It's because we share so much in common, that's we why we can understand each other. And that's why we can love each other. So the best thing a Bodhisattva can do is just smile. And they think, ah, someone likes me. <laughs> Does that sort of answer your question? Sort of? Okay. Phew. <laughs> yeah. And procrastination. Yeah, well actually that's one of my sayings of procrastination. Never do today what you can put off until tomorrow because you might die tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, procrastination has got a bad rap. You know, it's got a bad press. It needs a PR makeover. So I think in Singapore you should procrastinate more. And have a bit more peace in your life. But the trouble is, I mean, sometimes procrastination is done out of fear. We're not acting because we're afraid of telling that person what they really need to hear. And that sort of procrastination is you know, done from the wrong motives. But if you've got the right motive, you know, you're really procrastinating out of wisdom. Now look, when you go home, why do you always wash up the dishes and the cups in your sink? I tell people, if you're a Buddhist, you should actually, when you go home, look how many dishes are dirty in the sink. Compare that to how many dishes which are clean in the cupboard. And if the ones in the cupboard are more, then quit while you're ahead. And go and meditate or have a bit of fun. Because we're workaholics. We're perfectionists. And because of perfectionism and workaholics, we stress ourselves out which means we can have no peace for ourselves, no fun with our family, no rest and relaxation. So sometimes, if you're procrastinating for the right reason, you're just leaving things alone just for the sake of a bit of peace and a bit of rest and a bit of fun in your life, it's well worth while doing. So I think that we should start a subgroup of the Buddhist Fellowship called the Procrastinators Society. 
But we won't do that this week. We'll put it off until next week. Hello. Could car driver SGW2058 shift their cars? Blocking somebody's house, I think. Car numbers SGW2058. All right. Thank you. Yes, over there is a question. Yes. Uh, Buddhist wisdom and conventional wisdom. Yeah, there is a lot of difference there because conventional wisdom is what you learn from other people. Buddhist wisdom is what you learn from your own heart, from your experience, from seeing deeply. A good idea of this is, what's this? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is not another advertisement. I'll, I'll, I'll take something else up. What's this? Now, this is an exercise for all of you to understand what Buddhist wisdom is. What is it? Please tell me. Anyone? Glass, bit of glass. What else is it? What else? What else is it? What else? What else? Now this is an exercise. When you first pick something up and I ask you what it is, you say well, it's a piece of glass or it's a sign. And you think you've known it and captured it and know everything about it once you've given it a label. Because I said, keep on looking. You saw more. So you may be perspex, you see what was written on inside. See the colors, see the shape, see the texture. What else do you see? When you keep on looking, you always tend to see more and more and more. The trouble with conventional wisdom, we give things a name. Monk, girl, boy, you know, uh, Buddha or whatever. And once we give it a name, that's called conventional wisdom. It means we don't look any deeper. I don't know how long you... Are you married, sir? Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on how you see it. <laughs> it's all in the mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that much I learned from Buddhism. Well, for those who have been married... Especially, especially the people here. If you've been married and a long time, do you really know your partner yet? Anyway, I have no regrets of marrying. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Very good. How long have you been married? My son is already 20, uh, 19. Okay. So must be 20. <laughs> <laughs> My mess is not bad, eh? Not bad, no, it's very good. But, but the question is, do you know your wife? Um, whether he know, she knows me. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I... I've been, I'm a caregiver. Yeah, no, but yes, okay. But even so, sometimes that if you've been married for a long time, and if you think you know the person you're living with and sleeping next to, sometimes the relationship is gone then. But if you're continuing to see new things in that person, then your relationship is alive. This is what I mean. Sometimes we look at something, we give it a name, we think we know about it which means we're closing ourselves off to seeing something new. Now, Buddhist wisdom is always saying, I only know a part of this, so we're always going to be open to seeing something more. Stupidity comes when we think we really know it. 
we think we know our husband, we know our wife, we know the monk and when we think we know sometimes we don't see other beautiful things in that person other interesting aspects of this sign which is why we don't have true wisdom so real wisdom is all these things we know about something, we put it aside and then we can see something new so it's almost Buddhist wisdom is having no wisdom so we can see things for, for fresh putting aside all of our old knowledge for example I remember this I was always interested in astronomy so I studied astronomy learned all the names of the stars and the constellations know whether they're red dwarfs or, or giants or whatever but then when I learned all of that I could not appreciate the beauty of the heavens when I saw the stars at night it took me a long time to actually unlearn all that I'd been taught so I could look at the stars at night, especially in a place like Australia, and really appreciate their beauty again. Sometimes the wisdom stops one from seeing deeply. This is called the learning. Real wisdom goes beyond the learning. See the beautiful stars in your wife's eyes. <laughs> and not knowing what they're called. Okay. Yeah? Uh, can I continue? Yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, to be more specifically, uh, how do we use wisdom to guide our action? We All the time we make decisions, right? Then uh, how do we uh, assess whether there is a good wisdom? For example, uh, can we have a good action, kind act, without, good, uh, without wisdom, and an unkind act with wisdom? How do you differentiate the yeah, two? Can you have a kind act without wisdom, an unkind act with wisdom? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you can strike it lucky, but most of the t most of the times, you know, if you don't have like wisdom, you don't see very deeply. Very often, you can hurt people without intending to. Now, you really think that you're being kind, but really you're being quite cruel. A good example of that was a story of a man, a young boy, who had hearing difficulties, so much so that he was actually profoundly deaf uh, from the time he was born. And one day his parents took him to see a doctor and the doctor said to the parents that there was a new procedure which worked in 10% of cases and the, uh, do you want your child to have the operation? 10% chance. And the parents talked to him and said, yeah, why not? And so they gave the boy the operation and he was one of those lucky 10% so he had his hearing back. And the boy got very angry because the boy said, why didn't you ask me? I didn't want to hear. I had all this noise in my head now, which is called driving me insane. The point was that even when I read that story, my wisdom would say, yeah, of course, everybody wants to hear. We make too many assumptions. And it's our assumptions stop us being wise. So very often we should never assume that we know what our wife wants, what our children want, what our monk wants, <laughs> what our boss wants. We should ask. So sometimes that when we don't make the research, when we assume we know, that's when we make mistakes. We make wrong choices. So wisdom is actually seeing deeply into things, getting more information, and then you're less likely to make wrong decisions. Simple things like listening, looking deep, and don't assume that you know. Okay, thank you so much. That's a great question. Okay, is that the time, boss? <laughs> 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 okay, yeah, very good. That's okay.
Sorry? Yeah, roughly, yeah. Okay, uh, I think we'll end the talk here.